Hey, Collaborist. I'm Ben Leroy. And I'm Jason Buckholtz. And you're listening to Collabracast. How's it going, Jay? I'm doing well. We got our first rain of the season here yesterday. Had some good sustained periods and uh everything is it's chilly but the air is that crisp clean clear autumn morning air that uh we haven't tasted around here in quite some months how much accumulation of rain did you get i don't know i didn't look it up i did was garbage day and the the garbage truck dumped my garbage can and put it down with the lid open and then there was about an inch of water in the bottom of my garbage can so scientific enough for me right (laughs) mr wizard would be happy that's how we We, neurology around here we're doing good with the leaves are turning it's beautiful every year at this time i just want to shoot a whole bunch of video and take pictures because the light and the leaves are just so magical and then i never do and in some ways maybe it's better that i don't because then i just get the experience once a year and there are things that you can't plan for i've been walking down the street and then just seeing a bunch of leaves coming off a tree that you know you just don't know when it's going to happen but it happens and it's this magical blizzard of leaves and I wish I had that on some sort of recorded for posterity thing, but I don't. And I will always have it in my brain. But I know that the potential for these types of things is getting smaller and smaller by the day as the leaves shed themselves from the mighty trees of my neighborhood, which is probably the name of another post-rock band we should start. <laughs> I think it's probably one of those things that is impossible to capture anyway. It's like the number of sunset pictures that you take and then you just look back and it's, there's just no, I would, I would think that, that leaves falling and turning and falling is just one of those things that you can only really experience and, and get the full sense of in real life. IRL, yeah. Say. yeah. And just because everyone has a camera in their pocket and the ability to record video in their pocket does not mean that they have the skill set and the understanding and the knowledge of how to best capture it. I want to thank the people who are doing it for a living and whose skill set is such that my own is non non-existent in light of theirs. I'll leave these major events to them to document and record and I will appreciate it later and just know that I couldn't do a good enough job of it. So why bother trying? That's the lesson in life, people. If you can't do something perfectly, then why bother doing it at all? (laughs) Just leave it to the pros. There's a guy that I follow on Twitter. He's a, a photographer in Iceland. He's a nature photographer in Iceland. And I came across a photo this morning that he had put together. So there's this, it's this canyon somewhere in Iceland. And it's a a mile, a kilometer wide, three and a half kilometers long. And he, and and the, the inside of the canyon is full of forest. And he said that because that the winds are so high in Iceland, 
he's, he has about a three day window to get this picture before the winds just go, the leaves turn. And then three days later, they're all gone because the winds just knock them off. And so this was a series of oh, something like 45 drone shots that he took and stitched together um, and, and put together this aerial view of this Canyon with all the leaves just as they were. So can you put it, it was, can you send me a link so that we can include that in the show notes for today's episode? I want to check yes. it out. But I think our dear collaborative collaborative listeners might also want to check it out. For sure. And he should definitely be credited and his name, even if I could remember it, I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. So the show notes will be a perfect place to give, give him credit for what he does. But it's, there are some places that you are so over photographed and it's like, oh, that's a stunning picture. It's like, not really. That's just a stunning scene. And anybody who goes there with an iPhone is going to get a stunning image because they're taking a picture of a thing that's already stunning. I think Iceland, the, the, the topography of Iceland is kind of similar, but this guy, the images that he gets and he, he takes these hikes and he goes out and he spends a lot of time and, and he captures things that are just, my, my feet is, it's a bunch of politics. It's a bunch of just stuff that I'm not very proud of, frankly, or that's not very good for my mental health, but I was all be scrolling through you know, all the political vitriol or, you know, writer's Twitter is a, is a vibrant community. But then I'll just come across one of his images and it just, it, it, I find it to be very ground, like as somebody who has gotten a lot of healing and a lot of peace out of being in nature alone, like I'll come across this guy and see his pictures. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a palate cleanser. So, yeah. Show notes. Iceland has a very magical quality. Just looking, I've never been, but just looking at the photos and just seeing everything. And it reminds you that really this earth is just full of astonishingly beautiful and hard to comprehend places and the size and the change being, I, uh, many years ago, got on one of the glacier plains in Alaska and we landed in the snow on the side of a mountain and just the vastness of Alaska and all of the snow and it, it just, it breaks your brain. And I feel like if I went to Iceland, my brain would just be broken on a constant loop because I wouldn't be able to process the waterfalls, the, just everything. The hot springs even sound really good and, and nice. I see that you are wearing a t-shirt from The Strand, one of America's more iconic bookstores. And I know that you have been soliciting people's recommendations for their favorite independent bookstores. How is that process going? It's been a fun little, little project. Um, Yes, this was a, this one was recommended to me by one of my colleagues, the Strand in New York. I have no idea where in New York it is. Could right be in Manhattan. All right. Yeah, haven't been there personally, but yeah, I put the call out. I ordered a shirt from Print in Portland, Maine, which is it's a white T-shirt. It has it's the Black Flag logo. 
it's just a giant black flag logo on the front instead of black flag though it just says read books and then there's a tiny logo on the back it's it's pretty awesome got this one i ordered one from city lights books here in san francisco of course one of the more iconic independent bookstores um there was the one that i picked up in santa cruz at the santa cruz bookshop when you were here in person a few weeks ago and i ordered one from uh, based on your recommendation of a room of one's own bookstore here in madison yep madison wisconsin um absolute institution in this city Again, a place I haven't been, of all these city lights is the only one that I've actually been to, but I, I wanted to do something to, I, I needed club, I needed some shirts and I wanted to support some local bookstores in their fight against all of the things that they have to fight against in order to be viable businesses. So I figured I would just connect the dots and I didn't want to just grab random things. So I asked for personal recommendations um, the, the room of one's own shirt, they actually have a very cool series of designs. They've done some collaborations with some designers who are probably there local and, um, have just have some really cool designs, uh, which I'm not expecting to get for a few weeks still. I think they kind of bat ship them once a month or so. I think I just missed the October round of shipping. So that'll be coming a bit later. Um, I also got a recommendation from Park Road Books in Charlotte, North Carolina. I went and I checked them out, but alas, they did not have t-shirts for sale. So um, just good to just good to know about these places. It's good to know that they have fans. It's good to know that they exist and are, are out there doing their thing. And um, if you have listener, you dear listener, if you have a favorite local indie bookstore that you want to plug, please put it here in the show notes. Let me know if they have t-shirts for sale. I'm happy to pick up a few more. I've got two that I actually want to recommend now that we're talking about Harriet's in Philadelphia and Fountain Bookstore in Richmond. In Richmond, Virginia. Yep. That's true. Yeah, I guess you're in Richmond and you're like, there's no there's no fountain bookstore here. In Rich but yeah, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the, the so my favorite local is Pegasus. Pegasus and Pendragon, I think is the full name of the business. But they've got a, a few bookstores here in Berkeley and in Oakland. They were kind enough to host a reading for me for when A Paper Sun first came out. And it was just a, a magical night. Um, it's my hometown. So it was it was very well attended by people who I knew from all walks of life gathered there at Pegasus. I did another reading with our mutual friend, Joe Clifford, who put together a series of readings. This was all back in the pre-pandemic days when things like this were happening a little more regularly and had momentum um, at the other Pegasus bookstore uh, in downtown Berkeley. And um, that was a Wonderful night too. Read with Peter Melman, who uh, was one of the writers for Seinfeld. He kind of swooped in and stole the show as he absolutely deserved to, absolutely should have. My parents were at that one and my dad was so pumped about that. And I was like, yeah, I was, I was there too, dad. And he was like, yeah, but <laughs> it was very cool. It was a very cool night. And um, yeah, really cool, really cool thing to be a part of. 
I think I've just said cool about 10 times straight in, in all right. <laughs> that is perfectly okay. It is accepted American slang. Speaking want... of uh, independent literary outlets, what do you have on there? Uh, I've got I've got my razor cake hoodie. So America's only nonprofit 501c music magazine. I think that's I think that's what that is. Um, so hey to Todd and Daryl and everyone at Razor Cake who have been really an important part of documenting punk rock culture in America and just do tireless work to make sure that a community and the full width and breadth and depth of that community are captured and covered and amplified. A cool thing that happened a few years ago, on Tuesday nights, I have pizza night over at my parents' house and we watched Jeopardy. And we were watching Jeopardy and Razor Cake was actually an answer to a question on, on Jeopardy. And that, like, that felt really cool to me. I think that's- Razor Cake was on Jeopardy, what was the, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was basically <laughs> this is America's only nonprofit 501c music magazine and their slogan is doing our part. And I was like, Razor Cake is what is Razor Cake? Like that's that's something that someone could be of course, well, I shouldn't say of course, but I guess I wasn't surprised that nobody actually got that because I was like, well, that's pretty obscure. But I was really glad to see it, it happening. I would add not just punk rock culture, but also it, the most, I read a column, the most recent issue that was just this incredibly thoughtful, well-articulated, just observation of the current political state of, of divisiveness of it, it's, it's, it's about more than music. And you did talk about the breadth and the depth of, of that culture. And I think that there are certain political views that tend to be associated with, with punk rock and that kind of countercultural movement. But it, the, it was some of the best writing that I've read anywhere in, in recent memory. So it's not, it's not merely uh, you know, music reviews, concert reviews, there's cultural criticism, there's philosophy, there's, there's some real thinking and some people who clearly very much care about what they're doing behind it. And I guess if we're going to say this much about Razor Cake, I should also say a hello to Jim Ruland, who is out in the world and who is my introduction to everyone at Razor Cake, and who is also just one of the better human beings on the planet. Fellow Tyrus author. Uh, yep. Yeah. You guys were both Tyrus authors and we had a good AWP experience, which is a reminder that for those of you who are going to be attending AWP 2023 in Seattle, Collaborist will be there. We hope to see your faces. We're going to try to plan out some sort of party or programming or something as a gathering spot maybe do a live episode of the podcast while we're there. 
So if you're going to be in Seattle or the Seattle area for AWP in 2023, which is in March, I believe, uh, come, come say hi. We'll give more details to come. Good guy. That Jim Ruland, lots of yeah. good, good books. I attended a unbelievable reading that he did at a lit quake several years ago that all stories from his Navy days, which I'll never forget. So he lived a life. He did. Still is. Yep. Still he is is. Dude's Instagram is to be envied. <laughs> yeah. He was in Barcelona last I knew. And that sounds really nice right now. Yeah. I've, I have a lot of conflict about, I love Barcelona. I, I went for three or four days and in the way that you can fall madly in love with the city in three or four days. Cause if you don't stay there long enough, you can always feel like it was magical and perfect. And there was never anything that goes wrong. It was wonderful. I walked and traveled and did a whole bunch of stuff in the city and I loved it. And I was like, I just want to live here. But there were signs everywhere. There's graffiti everywhere that was like, tourists go home. Like, I hate tourists. Like, and I was like, oh, but you're not talking about me, though. Why right? did see other tourists? <laughs> so I'll probably go back later and apologize before I do so, because I definitely realize that tourism can, even though it is helpful to local economies, it can also be highly disruptive and destructive for local populaces. And I don't want to contribute to that. But I do like basking in the magic of, of some places. That, that goes especially for people who want to head to Hawaii. Uh, tourism sounds like right now, especially like during the pandemic, it was just completely out of control, which just makes everything more expensive and inaccessible for people who actually have to maintain daily lives in those places. So be mindful when you visit other places and, and where you go. Yeah, I think Bezos has like bought up most of Maui, hasn't he? I mean, there are... Zuckerberg has, has bought up a bunch. Uh, and then Larry Ellis from Oracle, Larry Ellis, Larry Ellison uh, from Oracle purchased a whole island. It's it's pretty gross, really, when it comes down to it. Um, I wanted to talk today. There was a little bit of drama over on the Twitter, and I'm kind of building that up. And this isn't even related to the real drama over on Twitter right now that I won't name names. But uh, there was a tweet from an author and an editor. And the tweet says, my editor pet peeve, and I promise I'm saying this to be helpful, not to be mean, that's in parens, is middle grade and YA books that are set in the 70s, 80s, or 90s for no reason other than that's when the author was a kid. Unless your book is a memoir or has some extremely compelling reason to be set in the past, it's worth doing the research to see what being a kid is like today. Otherwise, it feels like you're writing the book for yourself, not your audience. A related pet peeve, Books set in the modern day, but the protagonist has a quirky love of 70s, 80s, 90s media, usually music or film, that shows their deep, mature, unique. It's okay to let your main characters like the things kids today like. Those kids are your readers. And I had 
like a super visceral reaction at first because I didn't pay attention to the middle grade YA thing there. And I was like, how dare somebody say, don't write a book set in seventies, eighties or nineties. And I probably took that personally because part of my book is written in the eighties. But then I reread it and uh, I want to bring that to you and ask you what your thoughts are as far as you are the parent of a child who is reading YA area stuff. What are his preferences as far as when books are set and how do you feel about that as a as an issue. I think, I think that that tweeter is, I mean, my personal take is that that's, that there's some valuable advice in there, but it's probably a little overstated. I, I do think that there should be some reason for when your book is being set, a reason that's based somewhere in your plot, not just, oh, I'm, because I think it is quite easy to, you know, as, as that writer suggests, to simply set something in a time because you know it really well. It's like, oh, well, it'll be easy. I can talk about the news. I can talk about the music. And, um, but if, if, if you're if you are going to write something that is not contemporary, then it, it it should have there should be some connection between what was going on at the time and the plot and your actual story. My son loves to read. His favorite thing to read is is historical fiction from the World War Two era. He loves to read stuff that's set in the 40s and 50s, um, not 50s, the World War Two or like late 30s, 40s. Um, he, he, the, the, the stories that he likes to read are about, and he's found a couple of authors whose, whose names we'll also have to put into the show notes, um, who write historical fiction around, like in Europe during World War II, like kids, like these kids who are part of the resistance, people who are, you know, they're, they're, you know, these fantastic, not fantastic. I mean, they're realistic, but it's realistic fiction, but it, it is, it's the, the stories are World War II stories. And so therefore a World War II story kind of needs to be set during World War II. So from, you know, from what I've seen from him, there is this very, he, he doesn't care about, I think that he relates to those characters. I, he sees what's happening in the world. He, he has these, he he has this real sense of how important it was that the Nazis lost, that the world came together to defeat fascism, that the world came together to make sure that genocide was not happening, to, to put an end to the Holocaust. And I think that the, the personal connection that he has to those stories is not, oh, well, they're listening to the music that I listen to, or, you know, they're watching the same YouTubers that I watch. Um, and he is, you know, he's very much a kid of this time. He's got his video games and his YouTube, you know, he's, it, you know, it's not like he's this total anachronistic kid. 
but I, I think that that's what his preference is in, in his reading. Like that's what he has asked for the most. That's what we've given him the most. That's what he seems to be drawn to the most. And I think that, I think that, that he connects to them in a kind of a, a greater geopolitical social sense. Um, I think, I think the point that she's making though is important that there should be, and, and, the example that I keep thinking of that defies this, I think, is Stranger Things and how that is. I, I wonder if if that tweeter would have the same argument about that. I mean, there has been no shortage of popularity for that series. Um, nobody has complained about not being able to relate to to the, the setting of the 80s. So I'm not really sure what to make of that. Perhaps that yeah. was there's that line in there about having an extremely compelling reason for something to be set in a different time period. And with the World War II stuff, I would say that there is an extremely compelling reason. And your mention of Stranger Things, the reason Stranger Things takes place in the 80s, I don't know that there's as compelling a reason. Well, there's certainly not as compelling a reason as there is for World War II books to take place during World War II. But I think that the 80s and I guess up until the early part of the 21st century, one of the things that you can do is write without having to take into account cell phones, email, the technology that we have right now that makes us all so much more connected really cuts into a lot of plot devices because instead of getting on your bikes and hustling across town to check in on the abandoned house, you can just call your friend on the cell phone and say, hey, go over there and look at whatever's going on or you can all meet up and just look at Google Earth. It's like, oh, there it is. (laughs) <laughs> and and a lot of people that were responding to that initial tweet brought that up and that felt right to me as well is that writing about a pre-internet pre-cell phone time allows you to create dramatic tension in places that it would be harder to do now I'm not saying it couldn't be done but I know that mystery fiction has definitely had to reckon with the ability of so much communication that would have been impossible or dependent on special circumstances 40 years ago. Now it's ubiquitous. And how do you, you know, have the detective who doesn't have a cell phone and doesn't use email and has never heard of the internet. And what is the compelling reason for why that person is that way other than it makes the plot devices easier. I agree with that. And my personal experience is that, so the, the, my work in progress at the moment is it's set in it's contemporary. It's a contemporary setting, but I had to kind of come up with ways to, there's just a lot of people forgetting to plug in there. There's just a lot of cell dead cell phones (laughs) It's like, oh, I don't have a charger. Like, I don't like I can't have this guy 
I've got he's got problems that he needs to solve in some other way than just looking stuff up on his phone or there's like this information that I can't have him get yet that he would just easily have received in a text at the beginning of this you know it's like there's these this whole series of scenes is going to collapse um unless he doesn't know this piece of information so that's been difficult it's been difficult and awkward and I'm realizing that I that that some future I, I I have in my mind another novel that I want to write that is that where I need to go the other way and really embrace the modern the post internet rent you know the the main character of this is a is a big YouTuber and is you know hyper connected and it's going to um, if I if I do end up deciding to to write this, um, it's it's going to need to be more of an exploration of that connectivity and what that does to us itself. Um, you know the the our the, how performative life has become with social media and and um, you know one of the themes of that story and it's actually it, it's. This is some ideas that I've been throwing around for a long time and have actually written in some other forms and developed in some other forms. But one of the things that I really want to explore is, is, is obsession. And I think that the way that addiction, the, 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 the so many more ways that addiction now has to, to manifest itself in the technological era um, I think is, is something that is worth looking at and examining and, and that in and of itself is going to be part of the, the plot device here. So, um, as like, if you can't beat them, then if you can't beat them, then join them. <laughs> yeah. I just was working on a scene in my book that someone is talking about a situation in 1945 and it's dependent upon the speed of letters crisscrossing the United States. Yeah. Calling wasn't an option in this particular situation. The, the U.S. Postal Service was the way for the communication to happen. I don't know that I could write that scene set in 2022 and make it be plausible that people are just sitting around waiting for letters to to go back and forth but again i want to go back to my initial read of that tweet i read over the ya middle grade part and i would make an argument that the what i'm working on and part of it takes place in 84 and there are flashbacks for lack of a better term, to 1896 and 1945. The process for what I'm doing is I'm writing a book that is talking about how actions that occurred in the past, be it 40 years ago or 80 years ago or longer, how they unfold and how they play out and how they have an effect on contemporary life and that i think probably at least not stated is a difference 
in what the YA middle grade stuff is trying to do, which is tell a story that's sort of contained with right here. Whereas what I'm working on is more navel gazing about, well, the handwriting was on the wall 40 years ago. And how does this metaphor extend throughout time? And how, so it's just two different markets. It's two different goals. It's two different aims of what's going on. Now, in the case of your son reading books about World War II, there are some dangerous parallels about things being discussed there that are also occurring in 2022. So sadly true. It's, it's an opportunity to learn from the past and see how things play out. But even that, if I were teaching a 100 level English course would be different than what I was just talking about. So I withdraw my initial outrage and confusion at the reading of the tweet like so many other people i misread it and quickly got to a state of elevated like you can't tell me what to do when really no one was telling me what to do and that's that's okay we have a query letter to review yes we're gonna shift into we got a query letter from a listener and Figured we'd set aside some time in today's episode to run through it and give him some feedback. And um, he, he generously volunteered this uh, as an example for, for right. everybody to overhear. So um, I will not say his name or the name of the manuscript, but I'll read the rest of it. Putting on my query letter, considering hat. I'm putting shifting right. hats from podcaster to acquisitions editor. Hello, literary agent. And that's in parentheses. You're going to want to put the actual name of the agent in that spot. Just we'll get that right out of the way. I am seeking literary representation for my completed N.A. urban fantasy novel, Name Redacted. The book... Completed at 80,000 words is the first in a four-part series I've titled Name Redacted. In short, people are abducted from their reality and pushed into a new one where they must kill to survive and the dead are resurrected for the next, quote, game. This story follows Xander, a young man struggling to survive his first time in the game, and Saris, an experienced assassin who has taken an interest in helping Xander. Xander never thought murder was going to be a part of his daily life, but one night after a freak power outage interrupts his comfortable routine, he has a strange dream about a hooded figure and a lot of blood. Feeling out of place the next morning, Xander questions if his nightmare is really over or if it's just begun. His doubts are laid to rest when a maniac, vandalizing a car with an honest-to-goodness sword, singles him out and threatens his life. A deadly game has begun and Xander won't survive long without allies, but now his friends have vanished and the only people around are those that are a part of the game. To make matters worse, his enemies don't just have weapons, but strange powers. Afraid and unsure of himself, Xander must learn who he can trust and for how long. Only one can win this game. Name Redacted was spawned from several ideas, including video games like Final Fantasy, Kevin Hearn's Iron Druid Chronicles, and Annette Marie's Guild Codex series. It's a fantasy adventure that takes readers on a journey from our world to another, dealing with difficult subjects like love and death, like loss and death, 
but has a lighthearted tone at its core. I look forward to hearing from you. The required pages slash info are below my signature. I am ready to send my completed manuscript upon request. Thank you for your consideration. Author's name redacted. All right, well, let's do the quick checklist. Did we get a genre? Yes, new adult urban fantasy. Did we get a word count? Yes, it was 80 some thousand, which totally falls in line with an acceptable word count. We got a good description of the story that was compelling. I'm, I'm interested in what happens there. I see that the word count on the query letter is about 330 words, which may be running a little bit long because in theory, we want to keep it to a page, even though your friend Ben will acknowledge that pixels are in far greater supply than paper was 15 years ago when you had to send actual query letters and there were rules about like keep it to one one letter. I don't feel like that description went on too long though, which is good. Like it didn't ever repeat itself. I didn't get bored by it. The one minor thing that I would point out is that the comp titles were not specific titles. They were series and they, it might be good to find the books in that series that have come out in the last year or two and provided they have a good sales track record, use those and say something like title X, the third book in the such and such series, chronicles, whatever, so that people can see that. There is some outlier concern as far as if you're picking something that is wildly successful, and I will admit that I'm familiar with Kevin Hearn, but that's because my friends Delilah S. Dawson and uh, and others interact with him on Twitter, so I see his name there, and that's that's kind of the full range of my understanding and knowledge, but I gather that the books have been successful. And I don't know if the contemporary books are more successful because of previous success that this author doesn't have the benefit of going into. It's not, say, a debut novel that is up to the whims of the market in the same way. Have you done any research on the, uh, what can you tell me about the Kevin Hearn stuff? Let's see. Got a Wikipedia page. Okay, published in 2011, I'm seeing. And that is, okay, yeah. So, so the most recent one is 2018. We're dealing now with comp titles that are too far away. We've got eight titles. I'm sorry, we've got nine titles from 2011 to 2018 that I'm seeing. Three of them came out in 2011. Two of them came out in 2012. <laughs> That's a good touch point for letting people know the, the feel of the books. But at the same time, I think it's probably a little bit dated, um, which isn't to say they're not good or that they're no longer relevant. It's just 
agents and publishers are looking for things that are contemporary market numbers. And so if you had a book that was more recent that had sold well, it would be um, probably more helpful. It's also very possible though, likely that the agents who are considering this kind of material are familiar and they may be able to finesse from there how they would pitch it to publishers. But that would be my, uh, okay, so he, he is written a New York Times, he has written a book that is made to New York Times bestseller list that doesn't look like it was, oh no, it was part of the Iron Druid um, novel series. Uh, and we've got a USA Today bestseller. Looks like you wrote for the Star Wars franchise. So this is one of those things that sales history is, could probably use a little bit of a, a more contemporary, finding some more contemporary examples. I'd find a debut in the last year or two of something that is a part of a larger plan series, but that is also in that new adult urban fantasy arena. And I'd also say that new adult, it is my experience in hearing discussing people talking about new adult is that it's a, a genre that um, is still finding its feet as far as its understanding. I don't know, maybe that's not even the correct way of saying it. I've just heard skepticism with, do we need another genre? And you mentioned earlier uh, off air about how like the metal community has so many subgenres that after a while it it becomes um, hard to keep up. And I I will also admit that YA, MG, NA, all of those areas are outside of my experience in publishing, where it's been a lot of crime and literary and commercial fiction, uh, adult commercial fiction. So I'm probably not the best judge whether or not you should include new adult there. Um, I don't know what's gained or lost if the NA part of that's gone. And it's just, does it say urban fantasy? Is that what the... Yes, so, NA urban fantasy is the, okay. is the full listed genre here. Okay. I wouldn't pay much attention to what I have to say specifically as far as NA... Um, inclusion or not including it there, but I would look at finding comp titles that are more contemporary and that better fit your situation in that a debut author who is writing a planned series. Did you have any thoughts about it after reading it? We, um, I would like to know more about the author. Um, uh, you know, we typically advise authors to toss in a few sentences about who they are, what kind of work they do just to, to kind of bring themselves to, to life in a potential agent's mind. So, um, yeah, once after, after going through, and I think, I think this writer does a good job of, of really explicating their main character, their protagonist and the challenges and the stakes, and that's well done. After that, I would love to know a little more about who this, who this writer is. The challenge that will come up then too is that if you're working with limited word count, 
and you're already in the high end or maybe redlining a little bit, adding in another paragraph about who you are, which Jason pointed out um, and that I would say is, is critical. We want to know who you are. We want to know what you're up to. Doesn't mean that it has to be super extensive, but even just the lives here and is this, this is first novel or I've had short stories published elsewhere. You know, if you don't have any credits, it's okay not to, you don't have to feel bad about that. No one is waiting for you to say like, this is my debut novel, but I've already won two Pulitzers and I'm shortlisted for the National Book Award, even though I haven't published anything. So it's, it's okay. You're probably not yeah, tell us, querying at that point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but tell us who you are. That, that's a really good point. And I think that you you were talking about pushing word count just a little bit, and you're right. It is it is a quick moving, punchy description, but there might be an argument made that that I think I might advise this author to sh to shorten it just a little bit to leave room for a paragraph about himself, and so that that the whole thing doesn't end up being you know close get get too close to 400 words or so. Yeah, I, it's tough because I was pulled in by the time we got to, he has a strange dream about a hooded figure and a lot of blood. And I was like, okay, this is compelling. You've, you've set this up. Maybe there's no reason to go on. But then I was also thinking, yeah, but I don't know too many specifics. And then the next paragraph with an honest to goodness sword singles him out and threatens is like, then I say, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm in now. Like this is, this is good. But then I was like, but what is going on? And then I get it. You know what? I think what can, okay. Here's what I would say, author. Now that I'm looking at it, you can get rid of that last very brief paragraph that says, I look forward to hearing from you. The agent knows. The agent knows that you're looking forward to hearing from them. The required pages slash M4 below my signature, that also is, that'll, they'll know because you're querying, they're going to be looking for that. I am ready to send my completed manuscript upon request. Also, you don't need to put that in. So you can get rid of that. Also though, as just a quick aside for anyone who's listening to this, Always be ready to send your full manuscript. Do not query unless a book is done and edited and you think that it's at its perfect state because there's nothing more annoying than getting a query letter, being really excited about something and then having someone tell you like, well, I'm only halfway done with it right now, but I'll be able to finish it in the next month. No, you're not. We're so, addressing novelists specifically here. This, yeah. is, for, this is for fiction, yes. novelists, fiction yeah. writing. Uh, and I think what you could do is the um, uh, the current closest thing to comp titles, A Game of Pawns, was spawned from several ideas. You can get rid of that and just simplify that down to the comp titles. Uh, so if you simplified that down and you got rid of that last paragraph, it would it would still fall in there and you can put in your bio about who you are and what you do. But thank you author for submitting that. And if there are other people who have a query letter and they want this level of feedback, you can send an email to us at info at And we aren't going to do it every episode, but 
when we have time and the ability to, we can probably sneak one or two of these in every now and again to just kind of give some feedback. You're not going to get anything marked up. There isn't any future conversation, et cetera. Like this is, this is it, but. We're going to make I you do... listen to a whole episode of our podcast before we talk yeah. about your letter. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I think these can be, I think these can help illustrate the process and the what to watch for. I worry that if we did them every episode that it might get a little bit hyper-specific for people and it's not worth listening to. But if you're out there, audience, and you if this is helpful and you disagree, if you think that it's fine to do these and that this, you'd still tune in, I can certainly do more. I just don't want to alienate people who have come for other reasons than to hear query letters dissected. I think we could do one every so often, or if we accumulate some, we could do a, do an episode where we go through three or four of these and then people who aren't interested can skip it. Now, for sure. I don't have anything more. Do you, Mr. Buckholz? I do not. All right. Well, if you enjoy this podcast, please remember to rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We now have 100 subscribers on the dot over at YouTube. That feels, yeah, that feels like important. Someday, <laughs> maybe we'll have a thousand. Maybe someday after that, we'll have a million. I don't know. But I am very glad that you all are out there and that you are watching and listening and interacting and if there are things that we can discuss that would be helpful to you, please do not hesitate to make suggestions. And if we feel qualified to discuss, we will discuss. If you are participating in NaNoWriMo, keep up the good work. Look forward to hearing your comments and your updates about how you're doing. And if there's anything we can do to help this month, it is right now, November 2nd. So there are 28 days or so to go. If there's anything we can do to help, reach out. We'll see what we can do. We are available for a variety of services and can figure out something that works for you. And with that, I am going to go enjoy the rest of this fall day. For story. For community. Collaborate. 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 Collabor